Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked across hell with Dante the Pilgrim and Virgil. I'm never going to get over saying that. No matter how many times I say it, I'm never going to get over the fact that we did it. We got to almost the end. We're in the next to last passage of Inferno. We are at Canto 34, clear past Satan. As I've said before, we've seen all the things, we've done all the things, and now we've climbed down Satan's body and reversed course and ended up under the other hemisphere. We're about to find out exactly what's going on here with Dante and his guide Virgil as they have passed the center of the spherical earth. In this passage, 94 through 126 of Canto 34 of Inferno, you can find this, my English translation, on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can print it off. You can make notes on it. You can leave questions for me. Otherwise... Let's get straight to this passage. Get up on your feet, my master said. The way is long and the road is rough. Meanwhile, the sun is already riding in the middle of the third hour. That place we were, it was no palatial hall. It was more like a natural cellar with a rugged floor and very little light. My master, before I pull myself up by the roots from this abyss, I said when I got up, do me a little favor by clearing up my doubts. Where's the glacial sheet? And how did that one get stuck upside down right there? And how, in just a few hours, did the sun make its way so quickly through the day? And he to me, You imagine that you're still on the other side of the center, where I took hold of the pelt of the worm that ruins the middle of the world. You were indeed on that side as long as I was descending, but when I turned about... You passed the point at which the weights bear down from every part. Now you're beneath the hemisphere that stands in opposition to the great landmass. Under the zenith of that hemisphere, the man was born who lived without sin. Your feet are standing on the little disk that forms the other side of Judeca. Here it's morning, when it's evening there. And that one, whose pelt became a ladder for us, is in exactly the same spot as he was before. On this part of the earth, he fell down from heaven. The land that used to stand above us veiled itself in water out of fear of him and came to our hemisphere, and perhaps to flee from him, the land which rises above us rushed upwards and created this vast empty space. That seems well and enough of a passage. So many problems inside of it. As I've already indicated to you in past episodes, some heresy, some wild heresy going on in this passage. This is the last time that Virgil will speak in Inferno. He's going to be all Virgilian in all of his Virgilianness here at the end of Inferno, which is kind of amazing in and of itself. We want to talk about that. And we want to talk about this whole geographical problem that gets raised in this passage. So let's move right through it. It starts, get up on your feet, my master said. The way is long and the road is rough. Well, 
Indeed, if they've climbed down to the center of the earth, they've got to climb out of this thing. <laughs> and, you know, going down is easier than going up. And you'll notice we got all the way to line 126 of the last Gandalf Inferno, and they haven't taken a step yet. I mean, this is quite an ascent. Just think we've come all the way down to the bottom of hell, and now they've got to climb, climb up. It's up. they got to climb out. But Virgil is still Virgil. And Virgil is still Dante's guide. This is what is amazing to me. Virgil says, get on your feet. Virgil gives the warning. The way is long. The road is rough. Then Virgil explains and answers the pilgrim's questions. Where are we? We are past Satan. Remember, we know from the backstory Virgil is given in Inferno that Virgil has made it down to the last rung of hell once before. And we now have that rung named for us, Judeca, which he names here in this passage. Virgil has walked down here once before, commanded by Erichtho, the witch, to bring up a soul. Okay, fair enough. But now we are beyond Virgil's experiential knowledge. Virgil came through that hole. How does Virgil know anything? This is a prime example of love moving the fence. Dante loves Virgil so much that Virgil, the damned Virgil, is allowed to still be Virgil even after the center point of the earth and with the change of time. Virgil says the sun is already riding in the middle of the third hour. The last time we heard about anything concerning time was in line 68 of this very canto, Canto 34. And Virgil said that night was rising again. That's at line 68. And now suddenly, Virgil says the sun is riding in the middle of the third hour. The third hour is a Approximately, you know, it's very hard to tell time in the Middle Ages because it's told by the sun's rising and setting. Well, that's the whole thing, isn't it? The sun's rising and setting. I mean, the sun doesn't rise. I had a professor once. Oh, sorry. I'm on a tangent. I had a professor once in college who said that education has failed as long as people still see the sun rising and setting. If they don't see the earth turning toward the sun and turning away from the sun, then education has failed. <laughs> so I guess education has failed me since I'm mentioning the sun's rising and setting. Okay, well, that's how Dante would see it, so I'm going to see it that way too. What Virgil had said in line 68 of Canto 34, sorry for that digression, but what he said in line 68 is that the night was coming, and now suddenly he's saying, well, it's... I bet the middle between 6 and 9 a.m. So it's about 7.30 a.m. Wait a minute. You said night was coming, but now it's 7.30 in the morning? Interesting. What has happened? And we're going to have an explanation for that. You realize he's now told the time by the sun. The last we ever heard about the sun was in Canto 1 when Dante was trying to climb that mountain with the beasts after the dark wood. 
after that moment, Virgil has told the time several times in hell, but he's always told it by constellations, by night stars. Now, suddenly, Virgil tells the time by the sun, and here at the end of Inferno, we hear about the sun. Clearly, this is a huge change, and clearly, Virgil is allowed to know about the sun. Let me go back. The damned Virgil is allowed to know about the sun. Do you feel the fence being moved? That place where you were, it was no palatial hall, the text goes on. And there's a bit of irony here. I mean, we've just passed through Dis and Satan's kingdom, and we've seen the emperor of Dis, Dis himself, or Lucifer, or Satan. And they come out into this very empty hall to say it's no palatial hall. It's kind of ironic baronial splendor, right? It's like walking in one of those castles in Europe where it's abandoned and, you know, it's February. My favorite time to be there. It's February because there's no tourists. And you walk into some French castle that's a ruin. And, you know, here's the big hall and there's no tourists around. It's just ringing emptiness. I swear that's my favorite time to be there. Well, that's the kind of irony here. I mean, this should be the big palatial hall of the kingdom of Dis, this giant cave that they've come through where the emperor is. But it's not. It's just a natural cellar with a rugged floor and very little light. You should feel the irony here that the kingdom of Dis has an emperor locked in the center of it and the halls are empty, dark, cold, rugged. There's no fire in a big baronial fireplace. It's all ringing hollowness. My master, before I pull myself up by the roots from this abyss, I said when I got up, do me a little favor by clearing up my doubts. Let's just stop right there and talk about the word that Dante uses, pulling myself up by the roots from the abyss. Mi divela. Very interesting to uproot myself, to pull myself up by the roots. How was the pilgrim rooted in hell? Or let me ask that question another way. How much was the pilgrim rooted in hell. Remember I've told you that there is this theory that Dante partakes in the sins of hell, that he partakes in fraud, that he partakes in lust, thus he faints with Francesca, that he partakes in gluttony, he wants to know too much from Chiaco, that he is a participant in the sins of hell in some way. Is that the way he's rooted in hell? Or is this something about the poet? Is the poet having to up root himself and change his poetics, you know I think this, change his poetics to carry on. You know I love the meta stuff, so you know that that's what I'm going to think. But there are lots of ways to put it, and there are lots of ways for you to think about it. Why does he use this word, mi divela, this verb, to uproot yourself, to pull yourself up by the roots? And notice that he's doing it. He doesn't say, before you pull me up by my roots from this abyss, Virgil. He says, for I. So there's an action he's taking on himself as he stands up on the edge of this little hole that they've come through with Satan's legs sticking up above them. There's actionality. There's intentionality on Dante's part. And I think that's important for us to see. Dante can uproot himself. So what are his doubts? Where's the glacial sheet? 
in the world is Cocytus. I mean, weren't we standing on this giant ice sheet? Where is it? How did that one, he means Lucifer or Satan, how did that one get stuck upside down? And how in just a few hours did the sun make its way so quickly through the day? Look, you just told me that night was coming on. Now you're telling me it's morning. How, how did this work? And now Virgil, being Virgil, gets to launch into the discussion. He said to me, you imagine you're still on the other side of the center where I took hold of the pelt of the worm that ruins the middle of the world. Think about a fruit with a worm in it. That's Satan, the worm that ruins the middle of the world. You were indeed on that side as long as I was descending. But when I turned about, you passed the point at which the weights bear down from every part. Whoa, that's close to getting to the notion of gravity, this center of the earth where all the universe's weight is bearing in. I can tell you that Dante gets this from, most likely, from Cicero, who saw the earth as this immovability in the center of the universe. And Dante's probably getting this notion, well, of course, of a Ptolemaic universe from all sorts of sources. But this notion of the weights bearing down is probably distinctly from Cicero, who sees the ninth circle, that is the earth, the final circle, the center of the universe, as the point of immovability. But still, the weights bear down from every part. And if Dante thinks the world is a globe, if Dante knows the world is a globe, then the weight is bearing down in all directions, from every direction. And that's what's so interesting about this passage. Now I think we know how Satan is held in place. He's held in place here, not because the ice sheet of Cocytus is holding him, but because the weight of the universe is bearing in on this point, which leads us to an interesting question which the text does not address. But it leads us to an ancillary question that I can ask you. Was the universe created to hold Satan? Now, the universe was created most likely before Satan fell. It's debatable. Then if Satan fell and then the universe was created, was this the spot Satan was supposed to be in all along to hold him in place where all the weights bear down? This is going to bear out in Virgil's explanation for how Satan got here ahead of us in the passage. So let's get on to it. Now you're beneath the hemisphere that stands in opposition to the great landmass, Virgil says. And I explained a bit of this to you in the last episode of the podcast that basically there's this giant landmass that includes Europe and part of Asia to the Ganges, and that Jerusalem is in the center of it. And this is how Dante sees the globe. And then opposite that, on the other side of the globe, is Mount Purgatory. So that's that great landmass that includes Europe and part of Asia and maybe part of Africa that Dante knows about. So what Virgil is saying is, you're on the other side. When Virgil says hemisphere, he probably means the arc of the heavens, not as we think of it, a global hemisphere, the arc of the heavens. You're beneath the arc of the heavens, the hemisphere that stands in opposition to the great landmass. You're on the other side of the globe. Under the zenith of that hemisphere, that other part where the great landmass is, the man was born who lived without sin. Let's just stop right there. So Virgil mentions Christ. Virgil has not mentioned Christ since 
Inferno Canto 4, lines 52 through 54, when he talks about being in hell, newly in hell, and the harrowing of hell happening, and the mighty warrior coming down and pulling out people like Abraham from hell. There are many commentators who say that Christ is never mentioned directly in hell. You know they're wrong. It's, in fact, it's a trope of, of commentary. And it's just, this is one of those things that gets woven into the commentary and everybody starts repeating it. And you kind of sometimes have to back away from the commentary and say, hey, hold up. Christ is so mentioned in Inferno. In Canto 19, line 91, Dante refers to Christ directly in front of Pope Nicholas III and says, when the good Lord handed Peter the keys to the kingdom, who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, of course. He's talking in Christian tradition about Jesus Christ. So it's not true that Christ is never mentioned. It is true that Virgil twice mentions Jesus Christ and both times Virgil does not mention his divinity. Virgil focuses on Christ in the harrowing as this figure of great military might who comes down and yanks some souls out of limbo. And here, Virgil emphasizes the man was born who lived without sin. Oh, that's a big word in Virgil's mouth, a very Christian word, sin. Both times that Virgil brings up Christ, Virgil does not mention the divinity of Christ. Now, that seems incredibly important. And then Virgil gets to name the final circle of hell. He says, your feet are standing on the little disc that forms the other side of Judaica. So there are four ranks of the ninth circle of Cacatus of Hell. There's Caina. We learn its name, those who were uh, traitorous toward family members, from Camicione de Pazzi. There's Antonora, those who are traitorous toward political party or country. We learn its name from Boca de Abati. There's Ptolemea. We learn its name from Fra Alberigo, Brother Alberigo, the guy whose body's still walking around Earth, the ones who have been treacherous toward guests and hosts who have broken the guest-host relationship. And then the final circle, Judaica, we find that from Virgil. That's interesting. The damned only name the circles of Cocytus. No one could name Judaica, I guess, because they're frozen underneath the ice sheet in the last circle, if you remember. Although I suppose Cassius and I suppose Brutus could have yelled out the name from Satan's mouth of Judaica, but it's given to Virgil. There's a little bit of a problem here. It is obviously named after Judas Iscariot, Judaica. And so the final circle of hell gets its name from this figure, Judas Iscariot, who who betrayed Jesus before the crucifixion. But you should also know that Judaica is the common name in the Middle Ages for the areas of cities where Jews were ghettoized. This may be a node of anti-Semitism in the text. That is, the lowest place is named for the place where Jews are forced to live 
in medieval cities. Many modern and postmodern scholars now see this as a little note of anti-Semitism. And I told you that what is amazing when we saw Caiaphas with the hypocrites, I told you what was amazing is the lack of anti-Semitism in Inferno, the lack of Jews in most medieval texts in hell is full of Jews. I mean, it's just an anti-Semitic parade that goes on in so many medieval visions of the afterlife. But this may be the moment when you could say to me, nope, there is one moment. And that is the naming of the last circle of hell, not just for Judas Iscariot, but using the word used for Jewish ghettos in medieval cities. Listen, I don't have to save Dante. I don't have to make Dante a saint. I don't have to make Dante politically correct. I don't have to do anything but try to do justice to the text. You could also say, no, it's just named for Judas Iscariot, and there's not any anti-Semitism running around in this place, and certainly many Dantistas have. But I can tell you that many modern contemporary Dantistas certainly see a node of anti-Semitism. It goes on in Virgil's voice. Here it's morning, where it's evening there. And that one, whose pelt became a ladder from us, is in exactly the same spot he has before. So he's answering Dante's questions. Before, Virgil had told us that night is coming on. Now Virgil has told us it's about 7.30 in the morning. Basically what has happened is Dante has passed into the other hemisphere and the clocks have been set back 12 hours. <laughs> you know how the, the clocks go back and forward in daylight saving time or, or summertime? Well, in this case, the clock went back 12 hours. You gained 12 hours. So it's 12 hours earlier. It's now the morning of Holy Saturday. It was the evening of Holy Saturday at line 68 of Canto 34. Now it went backwards 12 hours and it's the morning of Holy Saturday. So we know that the journey to the center of the earth took about 24 hours from the moment they entered the gate on Good Friday until the night of Holy Saturday. And then we now know that the clock has been set back 12 hours to prepare us for the climb. Now we come to the wildest bit of all, the final lines of Virgil's last speech in Inferno. Virgil says, on this part of the earth, he, Satan, fell down from heaven. The land that used to stand above us veiled itself in water out of fear of him and came to our hemisphere. So here, here's the deal. Let me just explain it before I tell you why this is such wild heresy. Um, Satan is cast out of heaven. He goes falling down to the universe, clearly all the way down. If he's a seraph or an archangel, whatever, he goes through the entire universe. He plonks, lands, crashes into the earth. Great movie scene, right? Crashes into the earth. There clearly, according to Virgil, was land here at one point on the globe. The land itself was so horrified at Satan, fabulous myth-making going on here, that the land fled up to the other hemisphere and became what we now know as Europe and Asia and Northern Africa because Satan went plunging, I suppose, head first into this place. And then Virgil goes on and perhaps to flee from him, the land which rises above us, that's Mount Purgatory, above us, rushed upwards and created this vast empty space. So Satan went plunging down here, let's say head first, 
And the land, not only that was up above on the water, fled to the other hemisphere, this kind of hole got created and the mountain got thrown up away from Satan. Oh, this is so wild. Let's talk about this on two fronts. One, on the heresy front. Okay, Satan gets thrown out of heaven. Okay, this is what happens. He falls to the center of the earth. Okay, the land rushes away. Okay, okay, okay. Who is in the Garden of Eden? When did that happen? In Christian tradition, Satan is the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Now, let me just say, in rabbinic traditions, Satan is not necessarily defined as the snake in the Garden of Eden. In rabbinic traditions, that snake is just considered a very wily animal. Christian traditions, no doubt. That snake in the Garden of Eden is Satan. If Satan got tossed out of heaven and landed here, when did that happen? Because it surely happened when Satan fell, when he, as Dante put it, raised an eyebrow to God. Listen, I would hate to have gotten punished every time I raised an eyebrow at my parents, but okay, raised an eyebrow to God, to God and did his rebellion and got cast out of heaven. Surely that's before humans were created, maybe even before the earth was created or maybe not. So the earth was here, the universe was here, but where are humans and where's Adam and Eve and who's in the garden? This bit is an unbelievable moment of myth-making and heresy. And let me say why it's such heresy. Dante wants sin to be a matter of choice. It is not your nature to be bad. It is your choice to be bad. In saying that, Dante is much closer to me now as a postmodern person than he is to a traditional medieval Catholic. However, in doing that, he's got to then remove Satan as necessarily the tempter in the Garden of Eden because you can't then be coerced, beguiled into sinning. You have to choose. You have to say, there's the apple. You know what? God said, don't eat it. I'm going to eat it. I'm just going to do it. This is all part of Dante moving the fence to create a world in which human choice is important to the theological and moral construction of the universe. But there's a second point I can make here, and it's about Virgil. Virgil's last speech in Inferno is pure Virgilian. It is myth-making. It is about Satan. It's about how the land masses of the world were created. It is fantastical, like so much of the Aeneid and so much of Virgil's poetry. It is epic. It is grandiose. It is epic grandeur. Satan thrown out of heaven, land masses fleeing away, mountains getting thrown up. I mean, this is so cinematographic. This is the stuff that Virgil does well. At the very end of Inferno, Virgil is still allowed to be Virgil. Virgil is still the guide. Virgil is still the epic poet. Listen to this epic story he tells about Satan's fall. Virgil is still Virgil. At the end of it all, Dante's love of Virgil is so great that Virgil has come to this point and he's still the epic poet 
who can get them out of hell. If that's not moving the fence, I don't know what is. We've come almost to the end. We only have a few lines ahead of us. What, just 13 lines before we are finally done. That's the next episode of this podcast. So subscribe, rate, do the things that you can do. Please, it so helps me. I am so happy that we're here. I'm giddy. I keep telling everybody I know, I walked through Inferno and I hope you're telling it too. We walked through Inferno together, hand in hand, to this spot. Unbelievable. Come back next time. The very last lines of Inferno. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you then.